1: Discovery is actually the process of me asking you questions so that you recognize what your problem is and how bad it is. I might know. I can say people who sound like you, have this kind of business, or in this role, blah, 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 have these three problems. But I can't walk in and just tell you that and then show you my product to buy. I have to ask you questions so that you come to the realization that you have those problems and they're painful and it's worth acting on right now. And then I can show you the product.
2: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Derek Jankowski. Derek is the Vice President of Sales at Service Corps, which is a great example of a company that's using software to disrupt an industry that most people think of as decidedly low-tech we dig into Derek's journey in his sales career, including the start he got in sales in college and how that ultimately led to his current role, scaling sales at a sales team at Service Corps. We also talk about Derek's passion project, his side venture called Next Level Sales Leadership, which is focused on helping newer sales leaders get the knowledge and skills they need to become more successful faster. You know, Most frontline sales managers are craving this type of sport, and we dig into what Derek is providing through his venture. We get into all of this and much, much more, but before we get to Derek, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it, and I also want to remind you to check out my latest book, Sell Without Selling Out, It's a modern human-centric framework for inque- increasing your win rates and shortening decision cycles without using the salesy behaviors that so many buyers hate. The book's available everywhere you shop for books, online and in stores, so thank you for checking that out. Let's jump into it. Derek, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy, thanks so much for having me, man. Uh, pleasure to have you. Pleasure to have you. So, um, where are you joining us from?
1: Uh, Los Angeles, California. It's 93 degrees today.
2: Wow, here we are. Oh, yeah. End of the first week of April, 93 degrees. Yeah. yeah, I was just talking to someone who lives out in San Fernando Valley and 103 in his yard. Oof.
1: Ugh. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to this summer. I feel like it's going to be a hot one.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The climate change is upon us. Um, well, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm VP of Sales at a company called Service Core. We're a, as of today, about a 45 person startup. The company's based in Denver. Uh, we get to work out of a, what I think is a really overlooked vertical. So our software yeah, is basically.
2: Absolutely. The- <laughs> <laughs> Right. So I think, I think I think that this is a great example of how software disrupts and transforms an industry. So go ahead. Yes. Uh, so here's for anyone
1: at home. Like think about it like this: if you're driving around and you see uh, somebody building an apartment building or a skyrise or whatever, there's usually a dumpster out front and a porta potty. Whoever owns right. those physical pieces of equipment. That's a business. That's an entire business just dropping off, cleaning, and bringing back porta potties or what we call roll off dumpsters, right? Which is different than like commercial trash or something. Right. And uh, over 60% of businesses in that space literally run their company out of a physical notebook or like a spreadsheet.
2: So and they have all so this we- expensive in- inventory. That's basically dispersed, and they're tracking it manually. Exactly, and it and so we we have a
1: software that lets them easily look up customers, take orders, process the order, mm-hmm. uh, assign it to a specific driver who can go drop it off or clean it, um, uh, and also you know, also pick it up. Like all of that, all of the work, scheduling the work, and also invoice uh, plus track all of your inventory, knowing exactly where it is on the map. Um. Like often, what happens is you just forget that something is somewhere. Literally, we have people that sign up with us that just forgot that there's a dumpster that's been sitting somewhere for six months,
2: and that's a ton yeah, so of what's loss that, revenue. That, well, think about that. What's the well what is what is the the average cost of a dumpster? A dumpster, do you know?
1: Uh, yeah, it's somewhere um, somewhere between three and six hundred dollars a month.
2: Loss is what
1: they can charge for it. Is what they can charge for it, and then there's Figure there's about 120 to 150 dollars that they pay to actually dump it out into a, a landfill, so right. 150 bucks to 300 a month in just straight up revenue that is lost They're times how many months.
2: Yeah, and I would think, you know, roll off dumpster, man, just got to cost a few thousand dollars at least, right? Yeah, I think the they per- start
1: at 1,500 depending on the size, and, and it's yeah. going
2: up. Steel's becoming more more precious. Oh yeah, right. In these days, so yeah, you think about it. And then for porta potties, I was <laughs> so I was getting ready to talk to you and researching what you guys are doing. Is is I was just think I live near a a park uh, in downtown San Diego that uh, they hold a lot of events on. Like there was a Blake Shelton conference, a con- concert, excuse me, conference concert on this this park, and easily two hundred porta potties or more on various sides of the park. Um, and so I was just thinking about it. it's like, yeah, finding those, keeping track of them, uh, cleaning them, retrieving them and being able to deploy them again quickly. Right. I would think that that's a huge part of it is if you know where your inventory is and you have track of it, then you can actually sell it more effectively.
1: It's, it's huge. And, and imagine like Coachella calls you and they want a 100- hundred Porta potties, and you don't know if you have the inventory. You take the order, you, you're short when you deliver. Like, how angry are they going to be at you? This is
2: commonplace. Well, the concert goers will be angry at them for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Can't think of anything worse on a hot day on Coachella that <laughs> there are no restrooms available. Um, well, I just think it's, yeah, it's one of these things that seems very sort of mundane, but yeah really important if you operate one of those businesses of which there are many as you said construction sites uh, any sort of uh, even now in bigger cities you know cities are deploying them for you know unhoused population and so on it's it's really important keep track of them. so um you look like you started your sales career while you were in college actually right i did what did you what were you selling i that wasn't wasn't clear
1: Sure. So so it's actually really funny. I got a phone call to my dorm room. I got woken up by a phone call to my dorm room to talk about a sales internship. And, like, I said yes in mid-sleep, and I showed up. I ended up selling uh, books, actually educational books, door-to-door in Texas that summer. And so uh, imagine – so you had kids, right? So imagine cliff yeah. Notes, but for school subjects. Your son gets stuck on math homework and, like – the teacher needs it done a very specific way, not the way that you learned it, but you don't know the new way. So these are books you can reference mm-hmm. so that you can help your kid navigate his homework.
2: So for primary and secondary education or mostly primary? Yeah, K to 12. Elementary school? K to 12. So, all right. So take us, take us through a sales call. First of all, where <laughs> were you in Texas?
1: Uh, let's see. I was in San Jacinto County, which, so it was uh, all outside Houston. So San Jacinto County for a while, which is very rural, and then I ended up living in Sugarland and selling in a, a yep, city yep. called Missouri City. Um, all right. And uh, I knocked on a door. It's kind of funny. I knocked on the door, nobody answered, and as I went to the next door, I ended up learning that this really huge house I knocked on is where Destiny's Child lived when they were all still together. And so I didn't go back because they didn't have kids, but um, they lived in Missouri City at the time. And uh, man, it was twenty years ago, so I don't know that I'm gonna remember all the, well, I was all the say, details. Was
2: I mean you you were prime demographic for them at nineteen years old if you were selling <laughs> So So somebody would answer the door. So Sir so take take me through your pitch. I mean is, is how would you approach it this yeah, I'm sure yeah, people are always a little leery of door-to-door salespeople to begin with. So, yeah, take us through what it, what it felt like and what it, what you did.
1: Yeah, and I think the key, and, and I still teach this to my reps now, is like low, slow, smile. So, my name's Derek Jankowski. I'm with the Southwestern Company. I don't remember exactly that when. It was something like, you know, we're I'm talking to all the families at uh with kids at such and such school um about the god what do we call it the southwestern student handbook uh and it's some you know i forget i you'd ask some question and then like i'd love to show it to you and we'd literally point at their door and then bend over and pick up our bag and just walk towards the door like they're gonna let us in and it worked a miraculously like high number of times. Not always. And we had like a, what do you do in that case? How do you just pull them out onto the porch and have them sit down with you kind of thing? But it was, uh, we've not done something
2: like that before. Okay, so, walking to stranger's hu- up to a stranger's house, you make a reference to a local school, which I sort of get, I presume the, you know, the initial sort of outreach was something about Dissatisfaction with the local school, perhaps, or uh,
1: it's usually like. So it, it depends on the neighborhood. Like it, when you're in the neighborhood and talking to families, you would typically pick up on the thing. So um, if if the family had older kids, it's usually they're usually talking about how hard it is for those kids to keep up and mm-hmm. like get into college, right? If they have younger kids, the pitch is usually about how hard it is to help kids, even though you know the subject, but like they have to show their work and it has to be done a certain way and you don't know how to do that. And so we have this thing, we have to do that, can I show it to you?
2: New math. And you don't know how to
1: do the new math. The new math. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Somebody knock on your door.
2: Yeah. And so you you would, as you said, you would actually, they'd open the door, you'd actually sort of point to the door like motioning that you're coming in and just go. <laughs> All right.
1: Just sell anything. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I would say that I was probably average. Um, like I made decent money. I did it for five summers. I probably would have not done it for five yeah. summers. Like three would have, I think, been ideal in retrospect. But like right. my best summer, I probably made fifteen or sixteen thousand bucks. So for a summer for a wow. summer. Yeah. And then you, but like you're a 1099, so like you're paying for your gas and rent right. and everything. So you walk right. I probably walked away with like a grand or something.
2: Still, for a summer job, kid in college, that's pretty good.
1: Yeah. It's better than minimum um, wage at like a hardware store, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I worked on a slaughterhouse, so it, it uh, had a different appeal to it. <laughs> my yeah. Different days. smell for sure. A different smell, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, to me, it seems like this is the type of experience that everyone going into sales should have. Something similar. I mean, I worked at re- I worked in retail, so selling women's shoes was sort of my my entry into into sales. Not quite like going door to door at all, but um, I just think for when you when you finally had your first professional sales job, I imagine there are fewer surprises for you.
1: Yeah, it's it. So my first professional sales job. So just really quick, I had a second sales job in college where we called alumni to ask for donations. And yes. so I did that for, I forget, two years, I think. And then I managed a team for two semesters. And then mm-hmm. I went to Dell, you know, Fortune 50 company, but I sold like 60,000 products to businesses. And like that job just seemed easy after those those two, right? Got right. yeah, my teeth kicked in, you know. The Texas summers, is just like, you know, you sweat through your clothes, nothing you can do yeah, about yeah. it. People being rude yeah. to you, you know, and like working at a company people have heard of with a product that they like actually care about. It just, it seemed really mm-hmm. easy in comparison.
2: Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Good training. I mean, I know kids, uh, there were, you know, your age peers of my kids that, um, went with the whole cut cow, cut cow knife. Um, and, Similar, Yeah. Earn, earn good money, but we're going door to door and learning how to sell.
1: It's a good experience. And the people that that did Cutco, like really learned how to sell. Like what's nice about these programs is they actually take you through a formal sales methodology. They teach you to sell Mm -hmm. versus a lot of, when you get a sales job today, most companies just teach you how to demo their product. They don't actually teach you how to sell it, which there's a distinction there.
2: Um, Well, so what did you learn in terms of what actually to sell the product? I think this is a great point because it's like your point is like, yeah, they basically somebody's teaching you how to learn how to sell your product, but learning how to sell, you know, the real business of selling is different.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely different. And so most people, so my most of my post um, college experiences is software, right? been right. to four software startups one two four I think and yeah. um, or it's four software companies and it's like um, what most people believe the job is is showing the product the but like demo the demo means let me sh- let me just show it to you but the sale mm-hmm. doesn't happen when your prospects use the product it happens in discovery everything's about discovery it's about uncovering and uncovering is not even a good word i actually struggle with good words to describe this because I'm, I'm spending a lot of time with my team on it right now it's like discovery is actually the process of me asking you questions so that you recognize what your problem is and how bad it is i might know
2: sure. right to some
1: degree yeah to some degree yeah like I can say people who sound like you, have this kind of business, are in this role, blah, 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 have these three problems. But I can't walk in and just tell you that and then show you my product and expect you to buy. I have to ask you questions so that you come to the realization that you have those problems and they're painful and it's worth acting on right now. And then I can show you the product.
2: Yeah, I, mean, it's I think that's that, an interesting point to bring up here because I think that, I think unfortunately that's done to an extreme by many Mm, sellers, where where discovery is just basically qualification.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm trying to find
2: whether you're really a fit for what I'm selling. And that lack of curiosity doesn't have value to the buyer, right? Because with the buyer, the only reason they want to talk to a salesperson is perhaps, is to say, well, maybe I don't really understand the full breadth and scope of the problem or the challenge I'm facing. And really don't understand what's really possible to achieve by addressing this challenge. And that's, that's what they're looking for a salesperson to help them with. Certainly in the B2B world.
1: Yes. Yeah, and so you make a really good point about qualification, right? Because a lot of some methodologies call what I just described qualification. But when, when I hear the word qualification, I think about like, I want to make sure that you have what I need. I want to make sure you're motivated. And so I'm going to check to see if you're already motivated, if you're already looking to solve this problem. And you might not mm. be. Like, people tend to show up to demos because, to your point, I'm curious, like, you caught my curiosity. You said something on the cold call that I hadn't heard before. Okay, I'm going to let you talk to me for a few minutes. And then right. and then salespeople are like, money. all right, so tell me why you want to buy this. It's like, wait a minute, I don't want to buy it. Right? <laughs> T- tell me how urgent this is for you. Wait, it's not yet. It's like qualification occurs when you evoke those problems out of your prospect.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, what you describe is the behavior I talk about in my new book is that it invokes when you, <laughs> it invokes sort of the persuasion response with sellers, which is their default method of operation is I'm trying to persuade you to buy my product. As you said, just because someone said, oh, that, that you know, you piqued my curiosity with that one thing you said. Yeah, I still need to learn. I don't fall into persuasion mode because what are you trying to persuade me to do? I don't even understand what I'm trying to, what even what problem I'm trying to solve at this point. Right.
1: And so, like, these are, like, the two extremes. I'm going to talk, I'm going to try to talk you into it, or I'm going to measure to see if you're worth my time right now. And it's like the real money, that's what I feel like 80, 90% of salespeople do that. Or some high number, like with something like, uh, what's the stat? Two thirds of salespeople miss quota or something. That's the great sales... more than 50%, yes. More than 50%. The great salespeople are the ones who do that middle piece where they're like, I'm not gonna assume anything. I'm gonna ask you questions. You are going to realize over the course of those questions that you have a really big problem you hadn't been thinking about that much. And now, suddenly, you feel urgently like you need to solve it. I didn't convince you of anything. I didn't create the problem. It was always there.
2: Yeah, I'm just forcing you to... Not forcing, but causing you to think about it. Yeah. In a way that you hadn't thought about before. Yeah. It's the fun part of sales. It is. It is. And yet... um. Your point. I, I mean, I was just interviewing somebody previous to this interview, another person, and has done some extensive research. The company she's with, and they were like, basically, what they found is average win rates in B two B were seventeen percent across multiple industries globally. On outbound, right? That's, that no, doesn't consider it. considers inbound? Ooh. Inbound, on outbound, yes. That's painful. Okay. I yeah. guess I believe it. <laughs> uh, they surveyed more than 5,000 business to business decision makers on deals. Wow. So, which is part of the reason I wrote my book is say, look, we're just not getting any better at this. And what do we need to do differently? I mean, what do we need to change? Because, I don't know, what's, I mean, in the SaaS world, those figures aren't, aren't out of the ordinary, the 17%. Win rates on most qualified opportunities. You know, the, the opportunities in, the, in your pipeline at the start of a month or a quarter. So it's like, okay, we have one of two problems. You know, we either don't have product market fit or we're just not very good at selling our product. Or service, and
0: you know, unfortunately, yeah. I think it's
1: the latter. I think it's the latter. Yeah, yeah. It. I don't know. I. I think I. One observation that I have is this pressure just to like hire a lot without mm-hmm. just hire, just hit a headcount goal, irrespective of like if people are adapting and
2: doing what you need them to do, right? Or even we raised $100 for it, for it, a hundred million dollars a fit for what you need to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, a question. I mean, you are you hire people. I mean, you're not to put you on the spot, but I mean, a question I often ask sales leaders when, when they're having a conversation about hiring, and they talk about what they need, and they've got these pressures, you know, to hire people, and and yeah, you know, they're looking at their job description and the attributes they claim they need. And so i weave in this idea about win rates. I said, so, okay, this is what you think you need to hire. Have you asked your buyers what they need from your salespeople? And there's always this dead silence. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're hiring to fit what we think our needs are, but okay. But actually the, <laughs> our ability to win is all based on how our buyer experiences us in the sales interactions. So, if they have a lousy buying experience with our sellers, don't we want to know what that is? And if we're only closing one out of every five of our qualified opportunities, don't we have a problem we should be identifying and how we can better align with what the buyers need? So I think,
1: hmm, so I haven't heard this idea before, but, my, but one thought I have related to this is like, how frequently do we think buyers are gonna know the answer to that question? I think a lot of times buyers are gonna say, I just want somebody who can quickly show me a product. Buyers don't know that they need somebody with good discovery.
2: What do you think about that? Well, yeah, you don't want to phrase it that way. <laughs> well, But the buyers Fair. don't talk in those terms. This is one of the problems we have. Is is that for decades now, this is not a new problem. You know, we envision a selling process as these linear, sequential stages. And we know from research from Gartner and others that that's not how buyers buy. They don't buy in linear, sequential stages. And, you know, buyer Gartner this famous you know, buyer enablement diagram that came out twenty, I think twenty eighteen. <clears throat> they call it famously their spaghetti diagram because it's this really sort of—I will not say complex, but it's this dense. Flowchart of activities that start and stop and start all over again based on introduction of new information it's, it's anything but linear
1: yeah i mean when you think about anywhere else in your life like how often do you make like linear sequential decisions
2: <laughs> yet this is the way we want to sell to people right i mean okay hey we've got discovery stage this, this is my favorite example is the you know, discovery stage we have exit criteria for discovery stage it's like well Discovery doesn't stop. Discovery doesn't stop. I mean, you're going to discover, hopefully, you're still asking questions up until the time you sign the agreement. If you're in a competitive sale, and, which is not unusual in many markets where a customer you know, may start out talking to maybe a dozen vendors and down select a, a handful, hey, if you asked your questions at the beginning and they're going through this buying process with these other vendors, what are they doing? They're learning, getting smarter. Maybe changing their mind about something. Maybe somebody else, one of the other vendors, you know, provide an insight which sort of shifted the bear, the buyer's paradigm that they were thinking about what they're trying, trying to do. But they're not going to tell not, you that. I mean, yes, they're
1: question. not going to come to right exactly. They're not going yes, to come to so call he, with you and say, "Hey, I, I saw a demo here, and it changed how I think about all of this."
2: Can we start over? <laughs> That's not going to happen. No, no. They're just going to keep <laughs> on going. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a part with. I think a lot of sellers just don't think about is that, you and know, when buyers are making a, a purchase decision, the you know, conceptually what you have to think about is they don't have one buying process going on. They have one buying process going on for every vendor they're talking with. And they're not all moving in lockstep. But they're also not
1: independent of each other.
2: Not entirely, no. But they're not necessarily in lockstep either. And so, yeah, they're not going to volunteer to you that oh, geez, most times we will We learned something really interesting from this other vendor. Uh, It sort of changed the way we've been thinking about things. It's like, no. If you don't bring it up, they're saying, yeah, these guys, they don't get it.
1: And then on top of that, other priorities in the business, those shift, budget shift, personnel shift. My boss wants something different from me. I have a new boss. Mm -hmm. We just treat it all as if it's static. We're picking up
2: where we left off. Yeah. Yeah, it's anything anything but yeah, static. Uh, unfortunately, I think that that is one of the big issues is that where we do a disservice to sellers by by having them think about selling as being this yeah linear static process and world just doesn't operate that way. Does not. So, what do you say to do about it in your book? <laughs> <laughs> Keep asking questions. Um, you know, the, the goal is the goal and we touched on this earlier, is, is you're talking about with the demo, and I show you a demo, and hey, don't you want to buy? I mean, we set sellers up to basically, quote-unquote, encourage them, if you will, to fall into these salesy behaviors, or what I call selling out, right? Is when you put your own interest ahead of those, the buyers, you're selling out. And when you do that, you're going to fall into these manipulative, pushy, you know, persuasion based techniques, quote unquote techniques that are all about what you want and not about what the buyer wants. Yes. It's a so, seller
1: centered process.
2: Yeah. So we have to shift in the mind of sellers what their belief of what their job is, where it's not to persuade somebody to buy your product. Your job as a seller is to listen to your buyer, understand the things that are most important to them. Both in terms of the challenges they face and the, the outcomes they want to achieve, and then help them get that. And yeah, you know, if you're persuasion-based, there's no helping going on. And you don't really care about understanding what's most important to them because you've got one job, which is persuade them, regardless of what's important to them. And I think this is where we get this this big disconnect, in part, with um, yeah, in my book, I quote a stat. I think it was from Forrester. It might have been from Gartner. I can't remember which is, is you know, 80% of C-level execs saying they find no value in the interactions with sellers. And there was another study I read just recently that it was uh, 70% of buyers yeah. saying found no, no value in the interactions with sellers. Um, would Um, not surprise me if that keeps climbing. Yeah. And then another survey of more than 14,000 B2B decision makers said that basically half the time, they couldn't distinguish between vendors. (laughs) It's like,
1: this is the problem. It's interesting because do you think people how likely are people to be able to distinguish between Google and like whatever Microsoft's with Bing, is that what they have now? Like everyone can distinguish between those. And there are no salespeople involved.
2: Sure. Though, yeah, untold millions spent in, in marketing positioning and so on. Um, I think in you know, the B2B world is, is there's so many product categories where there's so many competitors, the barrier to entry is relatively low. You know, if you're competing against if you're selling a CRM system, for instance, I mean, you would think, oh, there's one, there's Salesforce, there's two, there's Microsoft, or it's like, I mean, I, I see new introductions of CRM systems all the time. Yeah. So if so you're a small business or week. yeah, a mid-sized business, you're looking for a new CRM system, there's dozens, literally dozens and dozens to choose from. You've got a salesperson calling on you. So how do they distinguish themselves? How do they differentiate?
1: Right. right. I mean, everybody sounds the same, even from the cold call stage.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah, it's part of why I write around the book is how do you differentiate yourself? But it's it's it takes operating at the level of intention to do so. That that you know, we don't teach and inculcate you know into the into ourselves. I
1: was just thinking about one of one of my reps, and like as we we had this conversation. And it was like a light bulb moment went off in his head where he said, "You know, we're talking about discovery. No, but like these questions, like this is what you did. This is." What and he goes, "Oh my god, Derek, I'm just not listening. I'm just not listening when they talk. Mm. I'm just thinking about what I'm going to say next." And I was like, "Shit, yes, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> like that one moment is probably going to have more impact on his career than anything else leading up to that point."
2: Yeah, if he learns how to start listening, I mean, it's it's actually it's it's a issue I addressed in my book directly, which is because I was approached by a young seller SDR after a talk I'd given. Same thing she said is, yeah, just having trouble listening because I'm really sort of thinking about how I'm going to respond, and and I have. Simple, simple fix for that, which is that you pause before responding. Give yourself a verbal cue, what I suggest people do if anybody's yeah, you know, <laughs> touch football fan. Remember how we used to count Mississippis before the people could rush the passer? Um, it's like one Mississippi. Give yourself a one Mississippi before you respond. Take a deep breath. Say it verbally. No, you don't have to say it out loud, but say it to yourself. Um, and give yourself a chance to process what the person has said. You sort of force yourself out of this, this you know, sort preparing to respond mode. And instead, give yourself a chance to say, oh, that, well, that's what they said. Huh. Well, maybe what I should do is ask a question instead of, you know, defaulting to saying something about myself. Give yourself that time, and that time's really important. You know, it's really, it's it's a, a function of how you change habits is when you have an impulse to do something is stop and acknowledge that you have a choice to make about the action you're going to take next.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. I had a rep who used to um, basically change his career, but he would mute his phone when he wasn't talking. And so he couldn't interrupt. He couldn't even respond
2: until he reached for the mute button again. Totally changed how his conversations went. Interesting. So he was building that pause into it. Yeah. He knew he couldn't control himself. Right? <laughs> <laughs> take self-awareness. But yeah. take self... Well, but that's the whole thing. But you yeah. used the word before, but intentionality is is... I believe the the secret to consistent success at sales is being intentional about everything you do. You know, if you're creating a good first impression, that's not just showing up. It's, it's how are you preparing? You know, what are you learning about the buyer? How do you, how do you, uh, you know, be conscious about the perception you're creating in the mind of the buyer. It's really small things, but yeah, you know, we know from science that, that these perceptions that you form first impressions are really, steep. um, you know, it's understand that there really are no small things when it comes to selling, when you're interacting with another person, there are no small things. Is you assume that everything everything is important. And be intentional about, you know. When you do a discovery call, what are the questions you know, prepare ahead of time? What are the questions you're gonna ask that are unique to this this buyer? Because you've done a little research. You might have some you know, if you do that, you might have an insight that perhaps are uh, just not like every other one that you you've been calling on.
1: And that's when you start to sound different from everybody else. Well, I
2: think at the end of the day, and again, that research that shows this, I write about in my book, is that in most cases, decisions if vendors are all perceived to be largely the same. The differences really boil down to the salespeople and the experience the buyer has with the individual seller. Yeah, it's a big deal. You become the tiebreaker. You, as the seller, become the tiebreaker. Well, I wanted to ask you about. Do uh, so you have a, a venture next level sales leadership? I guess sort of a side hustle. So what? What's that? Sure.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a program they put together that focuses on first time sales leaders. So. The public-facing content is, uh, is the podcast, um, and, uh, the non-public-facing piece is a mastermind group, Mm -hmm. so we, um, it is currently paused because I am very close to paternity leave, and so my life is just Uh going to be really crazy. Well,
2: congratulations.
1: Thank you. Uh, expected to resume in August or September, um... I've been doing that about two years. we it's a it's a zoom call once a week uh, where people bring the challenges that they're running into as sales leaders. and we can sort of speak in a in a safe, like private place about how to, mm-hmm. how to handle them. typically comes with at least once a month, I'll come with like a fifteen to twenty minute presentation on like something I wish I'd known. and I, I try to go outside the box, not just like here's how to coach reps, although that's important but like here's how I wish I, I had been managing my time since I became a sales leader like what I do mm-hmm. now like, mm-hmm. I rip apart my calendar every quarter and I put it back together based on what my priorities are Right. Like here's how I do it right um, it's been really good like the couple original members one's a VP now one's a director with managers reporting to them um, mm-hmm. it's been it's been really good
2: well, I like it. Well, I think that, that front frontline sales managers, first-time sales managers are the most underserved part of the whole sales ecosystem. And, you know, it's not fair what, what happens to many of those people because, yes, they may have been good at selling, but they're put in positions where they're not given the tools and the knowledge that they need or the coaching that they need. To succeed. And when their job is fundamentally about helping uh, other sellers succeed, that's <laughs> they need to be enabled. And it's just not happening at a high enough level. So I, yeah, I applaud you for doing that. That's good, a good service.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I, I read somewhere that, I might have got this from my friend Mike Tuzo, so, but something like 80% of of resources towards developing leaders, go to the top. They go to executives who've already been doing right. this for ten years. So not that they don't need help, but the people who interact with you are salespeople every single day. Deal reviews and coaching and yep and all of that like don't know what they're doing. Like I just I read yeah. a bunch of books, made a bunch of mistakes, you know, and just uh. You know, the number one, I think the biggest thing that made me different is I would, i would just like really, um, what's the word just transparent, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. So we're just going to try, you know, we're just gonna try things.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good lesson for sellers is there's, there's nothing wrong with admitting that you don't know something and, uh, people give you a lot of credit for that.
1: Right. As so, long as you take the next step, you're like, I don't yeah. know what I'm doing but I'm either going to find out or I'm gonna, going to yep. experiment or I'm going to exactly. And, and I think the, the other danger of promoting salespeople is that like the temperament is often different. Like top salespeople, everybody wants to promote the top salesperson to be a leader, but a top salesperson is very often there because they have sort of a selfish mentality. They know where all their deals are. They know what to do next. They work, you know, they push really hard for their paycheck or whatever it is, right? Whereas a leader is ha, has to be selfless. You have to get more out of helping somebody else reach a goal than reaching your own goal. You know, not that the first person can't be a successful leader, but like, it's much easier if you're doing it. You know, the guy who's, uh, the rep who's there already helping other reps, even if they, you know, they they lose a deal this month, it pushes next month because they missed a phone call. You know, but like, They help somebody else get to their number. Mm -hmm. That person is probably where you should look to for leadership. Interesting. Yeah, I wish we had
2: more time because we'd dive into that more. Because I actually think (laughs) that that most of the top sellers actually are good because they're good leaders. Because I think the qualities you have to display to successfully sell are forms of leadership. I mean, think about it. As I talked about before, you know, your job is to listen. As a seller, listen to your buyers, understand things that are most important to them and help them get that. That's your job as a sales, lead, sales leader. Sales leader, my job is not managing the numbers. My job is to listen to you as, as a person that works for me. Understand what your goals and your aspirations and, and things you think you need help with and then help you achieve those things. I think they're very similar. I would
1: agree with that overlap. I just think before you promote, make sure that that's the reason they're the top salesperson. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Yeah. Derek, unfortunately, we got to jump. this is great. Well, we'll have you back. <laughs> I would love it. Thanks so much.
2: Yeah. What's what's the best way to connect with you?
1: Uh, LinkedIn is best for me. Just hit me up, uh, Derek Jankowski on LinkedIn. You can also feel free to email me, Derek at com. Either of those are Okay. Fine. Perfect. All right. Well, Derek, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great weekend.
2: You too. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Derek Jankowski, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.